Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me, as per usual, is Matthew Stockton. You haven't got rid of me yet, guys. And I guess we should say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. So if you're an American and you're listening to us right now, you're thinking, what, are are Mike and Matthew on drugs or drunk? No. We used to be. We used to be. (laughs) But um, no, today... The day that you are hearing this, the day that we release this, is Thanksgiving in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Turkey Day. So uh, hopefully you all are uh, with your family whom you love and hugged and maybe you've had some pumpkin pie and unbuttoned that top button of your pants. and Pumpkin pie, one of my favorites. Exactly. So anyway, happy Thanksgiving to y'all. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In our last episode, we heard of the murder of 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert in Abbotsford, B.C. The 1975 murder went unsolved for nearly 40 years. Less than a year after Catherine Mary was killed, another girl from Abbotsford, Teresa Hildebrand, 15, also went missing. Her body turned up in 1980. She'd been murdered as well. Two years after that, and more than 200 kilometers from Abbotsford, another girl, Monica Jack, 12, went bike riding near Merritt, B.C. She was never seen again alive. Her remains were not found until 1995 near Nicola Lake. She too had been murdered. Police believe that all three killings were connected. They had only circumstantial evidence on one suspect they believe connected to all three killings. The suspect was a man who had a long criminal history including several violent sexual assaults. Gary Taylor Handlin. But Handlin was slippery, and he wasn't talking. 39 years after Catherine Mary Herbert's murder, RCMP employed their infamous Mr. Big Sting technique to get their suspect talking. After a long operation, Handlin confessed to the murders of Catherine Mary Herbert and Monica Jack. No one has ever been charged in Teresa Hildebrand's murder, and 46 years later, her family has yet to receive any official answers about Teresa's death. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 239, Delayed Justice, part 2, The Murder of Monica Jack. The investigations into the deaths of the two Abbotsford girls continued, but had been bungled terribly over the years. In the spring of 1980, 
the same year that Teresa Hildebrandt was found, police intercepted two letters mailed by an unknown sender and addressed to Catherine Mary Herbert. The contents have not been made public, however, it was believed that they could have been from the 11-year-old's killer. Perhaps in a crisis of conscience, he'd written the letters and sent them, trying to make some of the guilt go away. On June 16, 1980, the two letters were sent to an RCMP forensics lab for handwriting analysis. From an article by journalist Damien Inwood in the Vancouver Sun, Sherry said she never even knew about the letters' existence until she was informed of them more than 10 years later. Somebody found them in July 1980 and gave them to police, she said. If they had brought those letters to me, I might have been able to identify the author by the contents. The police didn't even make copies, end quote. Somehow, the letters, like a lot of the other evidence in Catherine Mary's slaying, had been lost. The report on the handwriting in the letters, RCMP later told Sherry, was, quote, inconclusive. Oh my God, Mike. Yeah. Last episode, we talked about lost evidence. Yes. I, I, like, I have shoes that are older than this evidence. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And evidence isn't like old you shoes. No. You have to look after it. Yeah. And what, what's going on? I don't know. I think it is small town departments that this happens. Um, when I contacted Bridgewater Police about what had happened to me in 1981, yep. they told me the files that they had kept at the time were gone. Hmm. They didn't know where they were, what had happened to them. They were just gone. Well, we have computers now. You can sc- scan things. Well, it's easier to save things digitally because yeah. it can be backed up to the cloud and in various different places. But at this time, I don't know, like so much time goes by and... Uh, and it's a murder. Yeah. That's right? the thing. Like of all the evidence you keep? Yeah, you keep the ones about murder for sure. You know? Yeah. Unsolved murders. Yeah. Exactly two years after Teresa Hildebrandt disappeared, 12-year-old Monica Jack vanished near Merritt, B.C. It was the evening of May 6, 1978, and Monica was riding her bicycle north on what was then Highway 5, now 5A, from Merritt toward her home in Colchina. According to an article in the Vancouver Sun, Monica had been looking forward to May 6 for some time. It was a big day. Finally, she was being treated like the young adult she believed she was becoming. She was just days shy of her 13th birthday, after all. May 6th was the day she would take her very first long solo bike ride. Dressed in a floral pink top and brown cord pants, Monica slipped on her favorite blue sneakers and was out the door just after lunch. She was headed into Merritt, 12 miles away, where she spent the day with one of her school pals who'd ridden the last five miles with her into town. The girls began their bike ride home in the late afternoon, After dropping off her buddy, Monica had only seven easy miles to bike along the highway toward home. I disagree with easy, Mike. Why is that? I don't know how people ride bikes in this province. The hills. BC is a very mountainous place. I used to live in North Vancouver. And very hilly. And walking up Lonsdale, you get tired. Like, you get really tired. When I rent a bike, Mm -hmm. I go around downtown instead of through it, because you have to go up a massive hill. Sure. You know, it goes up to essentially, you know, wall center, right? It's kind of the highest point. Yeah. And it goes down again. Yeah. Well, I mean, now you can get an e-bike and you don't have to pedal as much, so. Yeah, they're expensive. They are expensive. My buddy Malcolm, our buddy Malcolm has one, and he rides around like crazy. He goes to work, yeah, rides it to they work. They cost as much as my first car. <laughs> they do. Some of them do, yeah. So Monica's biking. Kid kid on her bike having a good time after seeing her friends. That's right. From the province newspaper, quote, Monica's mother, returning home by car, saw her young daughter cycling happily along. She stopped and chatted with her a few minutes, and then, with a few words of encouragement, said she would see Monica at home, but Monica never arrived, end quote. Monica's family worried when she didn't come home and began calling around looking for her, Glenn Jack, Monica's older brother, was out looking for her on May 7th and found her bicycle on the embankment of Nicola Lake at a pullout on the west side of Highway 5A on the east shore of Nicola Lake. RCMP investigators spoke to people in the neighborhood. A few recalled seeing who they thought might be Monica Jack at around 8 p.m. 
on the evening she vanished. Monica Whitecross, who lived in a house on the east side of Highway 5A, south of the pullout, gave a statement to police only days after Monica's disappearance. She'd been on her way back home from a hockey game when she saw Monica Jack. Quote, I saw Monica Jack, or one of the Jack girls, stop at the foot of my brother's driveway. Her brother was Michael Rose. He lived on the east side of Highway 5A to the north of the White Crosses. His driveway intersected Highway 5A north of the White Cross house. She was riding a bicycle. The dog started barking, and I looked up and saw her. She was riding with the flow of traffic toward Colchina. She only stopped for a couple of minutes and probably long enough to catch her breath and went on. This would be immediately after the hockey game ended at around 7.30 to 7.45 p.m. I was working in the garden, so I did not pay much attention to what happened after that. My husband Graham and our little boy went for a walk up the road and they were probably already up to the boathouse when they saw the Jack girl went past, end quote. The White Cross family also owned a boathouse located on the east shore of the lake, north of their house but south of the pullout. According to court documents, Monica White Cross's husband Graham, quote, described seeing a truck and camper at the pullout north of the boathouse while he and his son were at the boathouse. He heard someone crying out. He thought it was a girl. He then saw the truck and camper pass him going towards Merritt as he was walking slowly home. He saw a single male driving the camper. No one else was in the cab of the truck that he could see, end quote. George Schumann was driving on Highway 5A when he saw a truck and camper at the pullout and a bicycle lying on the east side of Highway 5A. He said, quote, At about 7.45 p.m. on Saturday, my wife and I were coming to Merritt from Kamloops. On the right-hand side of the road, on a gravel turnout about a mile and a half to the south of Colchina, I saw a truck and camper. The truck was parked facing south. It was a pale green-colored, newer-style Chevy, or GMC, after 1973. There was a camper on the back. I think it would have been an Okanagan camper, cream-colored, with red, yellow, and black stripes of color on the side. It could have been two or three years old, and it wasn't in too bad of shape. It was an eight-and-a-half or nine-foot camper because the back came down over the truck. It seems to me there was something black on the back of it. There was some hardware around it, maybe a boat rack or something. It looked like it was cluttered up a bit. The black on the back of it may have been a bunch of black stickers in a square or something. I'm just not sure. There was a bicycle almost directly across the road from the camper. It was laying on its side, sort of on an angle, facing toward the north and the lake. It seems to me it was a red-colored racing-type bike with white fenders. It was just partly across the white line on the road. I thought some kid had left it and had gone picking flowers or rocks or something. We didn't see anybody at all around. Michael Rose, Monica Whitecross's brother, gave a statement to police about what he'd seen. I drove down the lane to the road at about 7.30 p.m. on Saturday. I stopped at the road to let a camper go by on the road. He was coming from Merritt and traveling about 25 to 30 miles an hour, I guess. It was going awfully slow. Graham and Brian Whitecross were walking down the road. I waved at them and waited for the camper to go by. The camper was light beige color, an overcab behind the tailgate type unit. It covered the taillights of the truck. The truck was a lighter color, nothing standing out. It may have been a light tan or blue. From the general shape and everything, I just have the impression that it may have been a Ford. I pulled onto the road and followed the camper down the road toward Kilchina. It was still traveling fairly slow. The truck slowed down and pulled across the road and stopped at the point. This is the pullout. I drove past and went toward Colchina. I met Andy Toma and Lennon Grauer, who works at the store. They would be a hundred yards up from the point. We stopped and talked for a while. Andy and Lennon went up to our house and I went up to the store. I came back about 15 to 20 minutes later and I don't remember seeing the camper again when I came back. I couldn't say how many people were in the camper. He may have possibly been traveling slow looking for a place to pull over. There didn't seem to be anything wrong with his driving other than it was slow. Where we stopped and talked with Andy, we could have easily seen the camper. I didn't pay attention to it, end quote. 
From an article in the province newspaper on May 26, 1978 by Clive Jackson, quotes RCMP spokesman Sergeant Bill Sparks, quote, We fear Monica was forcibly taken into the camper truck, said Staff Sergeant Bill Sparks. She was last seen at about 8 p.m. on May 6. There has been no sign of her since, and in view of the time that has gone by, we must consider this foul play. Monica was quiet and fairly intelligent little girl and had several brothers and sisters. Everyone is desperately concerned about her, but her family are standing up to the strain of her disappearance very well. End quote. RCMP, working together with a local TV station, CFJC, aired a program complete with reenactments on October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, with the hope of new information they hoped might lead to Monica Jack's safe return. There were tips, but nothing substantive. Nothing more at all for years. Coincidentally, at the time of Monica Jack's abduction, Gary Taylor Handlin owned a truck and camper, very much like the one described. The truck was a 1972 Chevrolet Longhorn pickup truck. It was two-tone, white on the top and light green on the bottom. The camper was a security camper. It fitted over the cab of the truck and it overhung the rear of the truck. It had a yellow, golden, brown, or black stripe on the side and rear. The rest of the camper was a light tan or beige. The rear of the camper had a ladder on the left, a door in the middle, and a window to the right of the door. There was a double window on the passenger side of the camper and a single window on the driver's side to accommodate a bathroom. There was a boat rack on the top of the camper which looked like a roof rack, it was hinged and could come down to enable a boat to be attached to it in order to facilitate lifting it onto the camper roof. Although Handlin was living in Langley at the time, he'd been known to go fishing near Merritt and was familiar with that area. Already a suspect in the murder of Catherine Mary Herbert, Handlin quickly became a suspect in Monica Jack's disappearance. He owned a vehicle very similar to the one identified where Monica disappeared. Patrol officers recalled to investigators that on May 7, 1978, in the evening, the day after Monica's disappearance, they were dealing with a motor vehicle accident on the street outside Handlin's then-residence on Fraser Highway in Aldergrove. The attending police officers observed Handlin driving his truck and camper to his home at that time. On May 26, 1978, officers went by Handlin's Langley home and noted the camper had been taken off the truck. On June 1, 1978, Handlin moved out of the home he'd been living in, gave his truck and camper and the other vehicle to his sister, and then fled to Seattle. That same day, cops executed a search warrant for Handlin's residence. In his home, they found a 1976-77 BC road map bearing the stamp Outdoorsman Sport Shop from Merritt, BC. There's a hint. So he essentially he ran away on the day that they were executing a search warrant. Yeah, so I don't know if he got a heads up that they were coming or what went on, but he split in a big way. Mm. Handlin later told police he'd run away because he thought the police were after him for drug dealing. He also claimed that on May 6, he was driving north of Pemberton when he ran into mechanical trouble with his truck, which he repaired sufficiently to return to his home that evening and later went to a local discotheque. He said that on May 7th, when he was seen by police, he was simply returning home from a local trip. Lies, lies, lies. Yeah, it sounds like he's, uh, you know. He sounds like, you know what, if you look at a photo of him, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I like look at a photo of somebody who's a murderer and you're like, oh, they look like one. Yeah. He, he kind of just looks like a regular guy. Just a guy. Yeah. His pattern of sexual assault continued as well. He was charged with the attempted rape of a 19-year-old woman in June 1977, and at the time of Monica Jack's disappearance, the court proceedings were still pending for that rape. Handlin was convicted of that charge in October 1978. There was more. In September of 1978, he committed the rape of a 21-year-old female hitchhiker whom he'd picked up. He was convicted of that rape in February 1979 and sentenced to 18 years, which was reduced later on appeal to 12. So two things here. Yeah. Number one, mm -hmm. how does somebody have the, is the word guff, the ego, the, like while he's being investigated, he's still out there like raping people. Yeah. Like the, the fucking ego. 
sorry to swear, but the ego of, I just don't understand that, right? Like he just doesn't care. And then the second point is, how is he still out on the streets at this point? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, a rapist who, somebody who is, who has a history of sexual assault and is doing it uh, every couple of months it's, or every few months, it seems he's been uh, flagged for that or accused of it. Um, how on earth is that guy being released on bail? It was the seventies. I guess so. The women were wearing short skirts. It was all, all that their, bullshit, right? That that baloney that it was all their fault. Yeah, that, yeah. That it's all that sort of. Oh, you just you know, you know. It's amazing how society, thank God, has changed. Still needs to change, but has changed from this sort of. You know, back then it was just sort of a yeah, it was serious, but they just got away with shit all the time. Yeah. Horrible. While in the Kent Institution in B.C., Handlin was visited by police officers on one occasion around 1980. The date isn't clear. Sergeant Briggs of the Abbotsford Police visited him along with Handlin's mother to try and persuade him to take a lie detector test regarding two homicides, that of Catherine Mary Herbert and Monica Jack. Sergeant Briggs did not speak to him, only his mother did. Handlin declined the request for the lie detector test. Later, Gary Taylor Hanlon was moved to Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario. He was visited there twice. The first time was when two officers came, one from Ottawa and one from British Columbia, Officer Bartkowski and Staff Sergeant Cleveland to ask about Catherine Mary Herbert's murder. They also mentioned Monica Jack and Teresa Hildebrandt's murders, as well as four or five others. From court documents later on, Handlin claimed that the officers implored him to just, quote, come clean and we can get you time served. He said they were talking about him pleading guilty to a charge of manslaughter. He claimed he could not remember anything else that they had said. Handlin was moved from Kingston to Warkworth Institution. Staff Sergeant Cleveland visited Gary Handlin at Warkworth. Cleveland wanted to know if Handlin would take a lie detector test. Mr. Hanlon told Staff Sergeant Cleveland to talk to his lawyer. He told Cleveland that he had retained a lawyer because he believed he was being unfairly denied parole. He learned from his lawyer it was because the police suspected him of, quote, two murders or more. He could not remember if Staff Sergeant Cleveland told him anything about the incidents he was investigating. Hanlon was not interviewed again while he was in custody at that time. In 1987... Hanlon was released on mandatory parole after serving eight years. He next heard from the police about the murders he was being accused of as his sentence was running out in 1991. By then, Hanlon was living in Minden, Ontario with a woman. She told him that the police had come to the school where she was a teacher and informed her of his background. He said that he was also questioned in relation to the Leslie Mahaffey murder, eventually attributed to Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. He believed that the police came to talk to him as a result of information they'd received from Sergeant Briggs. On another occasion, about a year later, two officers came to interview Gary Hanlon in relation to another disappearance in Ontario. At the time, he agreed to give them his DNA. There were six or more other occasions when he was asked to provide DNA for, quote, high-profile cases in Ontario. He said he'd been visited by Toronto Police, Military Police, Halton Police, and Trenton Police. The RCMP, quote, hassled me, going through my jobs, stuff like that, end quote. He said that they would go and talk to his employers and that it cost him some jobs, including union jobs. He claimed that as a result, he stopped working for employers because he, quote, felt that they would just come and harass me, so I worked for myself, end quote. Handlin even claimed one OPP officer had pulled him over, quote, 30 to 40 times and had, quote, physically kicked him into the ditch. As a result of that incident, the kicking into the ditch, Handlin was found guilty and given a jail sentence for dangerous driving. More after a quick break, but first, Here's a promo from our friend Eve Lazarus for her podcast, Cold Case Canada. Eve covers lots of cases, including this one that we're talking about today. Her book, Cold Case BC, is available for pre-order at Arsenal Pulp Press. 
just check out Eve's website, evelazarus.com, for more information. Here's Eve with her promo. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm excited to tell you about my podcast, Cold Case Canada. For the past several years, I've been investigating unsolved murders and missing person cases that have mostly been forgotten by everyone except family and friends. I wanted to help to change that and tell the story of their lives, not just their murders. The episodes for Season 3 are based on my book, Cold Case BC, and include an update on the babes in the woods, the two boys found murdered in Stanley Park in 1953. There is the entire Jack family missing from Prince George, and there's a heartbreaking story of three-year-old Casey Bowen, taken from her bed in the middle of the night. I've interviewed law enforcement officials, including homicide detectives who worked on these files. I've talked to the family and friends of the victims. I've looked at the forensics and I've followed the police investigation. I'm convinced that many of these cases can still be solved. Find Cold Case Canada on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew. All the time he's in jail, so I'm yeah. jumping in here. He's yeah. being visited by police. Yep. There's it's there's a weirdness here that I don't quite get. Which is? I mean, are they talking to anybody else? Like, mm. like he's this person, but they haven't nailed him. Obviously, he was looked at for Leslie Mahaffey, so yeah. and we know that was Bernardo and Homolka, but it sounds like the old adage where, you know, they're looking at all the usual suspects. He's one of the usual suspects in this thing, and they just hope to hit the right guy. They're sort of like moons circling this planet of yeah. rape. Yeah, isn't it awful? 17 years after her disappearance, Monica Jack's remains were found by forestry workers in late 1995, approximately six kilometers up Swakam Mountain from Highway 5, about 23 kilometers from the abduction site. Her skull was found on Swakam Mountain by a forestry crew conducting a controlled burn. Swakam Mountain is located slightly north and to the west of Merritt and slightly southwest of the southern tip of Nicola Lake. Monica was identified using dental records and DNA testing. So we just had a break in the show. Yeah. And for us, it's like a few minute break. Yeah. For, but this is 17 years later. 17 years later. So her friends and family for 17 years. Didn't know what happened. Didn't know what happened. And they still, you know. Well, they still don't know what happened happened At yet, this point. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's 17 years. 17 Imagine years. Imagine living with that for 17 years. Yeah. I mean, 17 years. You think about it, like you would have been 28 years old. Yeah. You know, possibly a mom of her own, like with a life and all that kind of stuff. 17 years. Yeah. The map that had been found in Hanlon's residence in 1978 showed the road traveling over Swakam Mountain from the Merritt area, ending in Cache Creek. It also showed that Cache Creek has access to Lillooet via Highway 12. From Lillooet, there is a back road that leads to Pemberton, Squamish, and Whistler, and then it was an easy drive down the Sea to Sky Highway and then via Highway 1 onto Langley, where Gary Hanlon lived. Monica's case fell under Project EPANA, a task force dedicated to the unsolved murders of Indigenous women and girls with links to Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert, B.C., otherwise known as the Highway of Tears. Gary Handlin was still the number one suspect in Monica's murder, but cops didn't have enough to charge him. After the positive identification, Monica's devastated family began planning a memorial service for the slain little girl. According to the Vancouver Sun, two days before the church service, 53 friends and relatives hiked to the spot where her remains had been found. There they held a ceremony to release Monica's spirit. I kind of like that yeah. thought. Um... After all that time, you'd need something representational yeah. of, of letting go for them and being freed for her. Especially freeing her from that place where the violence happened yeah. and that kind yeah. of thing. And, to... it, and yeah, and it's for them as well, right? Mm -hmm. it's, um, I wonder what that's like. Is that a traditional? I do believe in this, in the case of a violent death, that that would be. Traditional? Traditional. Uh, indigenous practice. I was going to say, I'd like to see something like that, but I don't want to see anything yeah, you like don't that. Want, you, 
it would be something that it would be fascinating to participate in, but it's something you never want to have yeah, to do. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, Catherine Mary Herbert's mother, Sherry, was trying to keep police on task in regard to her daughter's murder, which was as yet unsolved. Frustrated with a lack of progress in the case, word of the botched evidence collection, and disappointment with the half-assed original autopsy, Sherry pushed for something radical. She asked for the exhumation of Catherine Mary's body and for a second, more thorough autopsy of her remains. Her request was granted. The flesh of Mary Catherine's body was extremely decayed, but the bones were intact. Dr. Sheila Carlisle, who at the time was the regional forensic pathologist for the Fraser Valley, was able to reconstruct Catherine Mary's skull with the assistance of a coroner, Bart Bastium. In her autopsy report dated August 21, 1996, Carlisle concluded that based on her examination of the skull, there were at least two major points of impact, one to the outer aspect of the left mandible and the second to the right temporal side of the skull. She described the damage to the right side of the skull as a very broad fracture, basically involving all of the right temporal bone and extending up towards almost the midline of the skull, with radiating fractures coming down towards the top of the right eye socket, and with fractures also extending down through the nose. She described it as, quote, a crushing fracture, which involved the area of the cheekbone on the right and the edge of the eye socket and the right temporal bone, end quote. Also recovered, according to David Ridgen's documentary, Garden of Tears, were matted hair, twigs, leaves, an intact cut-off t-shirt, and the clothes that Catherine Mary had been wearing at the time of her murder. But those things didn't seem to help very much. So her mother's so desperate mm -hmm. to figure out, for an answer, yep. that she, her, she has her daughter's body exhumed. Yeah, like you push for an exhumation. That's an extreme thing. Yeah. I've been involved in a couple of exhumations in my life because of when you worked at the, when I worked at the cemetery, and that's not something that's undertaken. Excuse, excuse the pun. Undertaken. undertaken. It's not uh, something that's undertaken lightly. No. It isn't something that happens every day. No. It is something that is a last resort for some people when it comes to crime, at least. Yeah. It's really sad that Sherry felt she had no other options. You know, yeah. that she had to. It's a desperate place to be. Mm-hmm. In September 2001, a special ceremony was held to commemorate the Matsui girls, Catherine Mary Herbert and Teresa Hildebrand, who died more than 25 years prior. Attendees wore remembers ribbons pinned to their clothes. Catherine Mary's mother, the ever-feisty Sherry, was at the end of her rope, frustrated with the Abbotsford police who she felt hated her by now as she would not go away. She was doing everything she could, including hiring private investigators to do what she felt the police would not. Sherry filed a complaint in 2003 with the Police Complaints Commissioner. In 2004, the RCMP took over the murder cases of Catherine Mary and Teresa from the Abbotsford police. More tragedy had stricken Sherry's family. She'd lost a third child. Her 21-year-old son, William, had died by suicide in 1983. Sherry attributed William's death to the grief of Catherine Mary's as-yet-unsolved murder. Sherry, then living in Chilliwack, had created what she called her Garden of Tears in 2003 on the property outside her home. It was a small memorial place for grieving families to come and find some solitude and solace with other grieving families. Small plaques were erected and rocks were painted for each missing member of the grieving families. This included plaques and rocks for each of Sherry's three children. She wrote on her website, quote, The Garden of Tears slash Garden of Hope was officially opened during a grief support retreat. Within the garden is another garden called the Garden of Hope. This garden is dedicated to the many missing and too many unidentified Jane and John and baby does. The hope is that the missing come home safely and the unidentifieds are given back their names and returned to their families for proper burial and goodbyes. She continued, quote, We painted the names on rocks and sprayed them with protection from the weather. The rocks were placed in the garden and a lot of stories in the memory book. 
Alas, the rocks are not holding the paint, and so we are building a memorial wall, which will be unveiled at the retreat in August 2004. Brass plaques will be placed on the wall to remember our loved ones. The garden is a reality now. I walk in it every day. I often sit for a while in the seating area and remember my children. End quote. After his release from prison in 1987, Hanlon had been convicted of three charges of possession of a narcotic in 1991, 95, and 96. He was convicted of one count of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle in 1999, mentioned previously, and a charge of flight from a police officer in dangerous driving in 2004. More evidence of his abuse of drugs and alcohol surfaced from his dealings with police in 2007 and 2009. Police still felt Gary Hanlon was the one and only person responsible for the deaths of all three girls. Over the next few years, they put a plan into motion to get him to talk. As we've heard in many other high-profile cases, RCMP decided on their tried-and-true approach, the Mr. Big Sting. It would be a complex operation eventually leading to Gary Taylor Handlin, hopefully, confessing to the three killings. Mr. Big. You know my thoughts? Yeah. The listeners know my thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Big Stings catch people, right? Yeah. But I still worry about them. I, but about the veracity of them and, and how the how the confession is obtained. I'm worried that it creates houses of cards, right? And, yep. And with this one, you know, it's, you know, we've seen other cases where there's just obvious, obvious, obvious police mishandling, mm-hmm. right? This one, I think they just didn't, couldn't crack it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I still don't like the Mr. Biggs because I worry, you know, it's great if it catches people, right? But I worry about the future and people being released because of it. Yeah. Yeah. The operation started on November 22nd, 2013 and followed with a number of scenarios designed to arrange an encounter and ongoing contacts between the accused, Gary Handlin, and members of the organization, the RCMP, undercover officers. In total, there were 103 scenarios staged. However, Handlin was not involved in 21 of those scenarios, and his first involvement was not until February 8, 2014, when Handlin met Agent B, a direct contact with the criminal organization. By this time, Handlin was 67 years old and relatively frail. He'd had a terrible life from childhood. He has had very little education, having dropped out of school in grade 8 because of his problems at home, which included an alcoholic stepfather who routinely assaulted Gary Handlin's mother. Gary was in terrible shape, too. Handlin had suffered strokes and had arthritis in his shoulders. According to court documents, quote, Mr. Hanlon is a man who has lived a life marked by drug and alcohol abuse, and he was still beset with those problems when the undercover investigation began. Mr. Hanlon's drug problems were so severe that he had acted out violently in response to hallucinations brought on by excessive use of cocaine. The mental health problems Mr. Hanlon had suffered were so severe that he was arrested under the Mental Health Act, he had lasting injuries from his years of physical labor, including A, old injuries in the hips and arthritis spreading to both hips, B, arthritis and inflammation in the groin area, C, old injury to right shoulder, torn rotator cuff and operation, D, injury to the left shoulder included a torn rotator cuff and fractured bone, was waitlisted for surgery a year before his arrest, F, Injuries in both shoulders were exasperated by arthritis. G. Injuries to right knee, one operation and minor arthritis in the right knee. H. Two injuries to left knee, skiing and logging, which resulted in two botched surgeries and a subsequent surgery to try and fix it, which left him with chronic pain and arthritis spreading to the knee. He'd been prescribed a variety of different drugs to treat his ailments and to manage his ongoing pain. This guy is an old guy now. He's busted up at this point. Right? But what I'm thinking as I'm reading this list of things, he had the opportunity to live a life, to get old, to go logging, to go skiing, and do other things that essentially his body would break down over time. These girls had the right for their bodies to break down over time from skiing accidents. Exactly. From doing stuff and getting the scars and being able to tell the stories, and they never got that chance. They never got those opportunities. 
Despite Hanlon's health concerns, RCMP operatives went ahead leading him through a variety of scenarios seeing him perform errands for the shadowy criminal organization until they told him, as seems to be the tactic, that he was ready for bigger and better things. But first, Hanlon had to be vetted by the head of the organization, Mr. Big. Part of that process was owning up to past crimes, things that might come back on the organization. On November 14, 2014, it was the operatives who introduced the topic of Monica Jack's murder. From court documents, quote, Agent A told Hanlon that there had been, quote, TV shows and documentaries about the murder and that it was part of the Highway of Tears. Hanlon identified the Highway of Tears as being in the Prince George area and said that he, quote, had never been up there. Agent A said the Highway of Tears was the whole interior and that the homicide occurred in 1978. Hanlon denied remembering any name associated to the murder and expressed uncertainty when Agent A referred to the name of the victim as Monica Jack. Agent A then told Hanlon that the police had a DNA sample from the remains which were found in 1995 and it was a positive match with his DNA. Hanlon asked, Why was I not arrested? Agent A said it was a low probability percentage, so they sent DNA samples to a lab in Houston, Texas, and the police expected to have the final results completed and the documentation for the court by approximately November 2015, a year from the date of the conversation. In addition to DNA, Agent A also told Hanlon that the police had witnesses that saw him in the area where the girl went missing to support the charges against him. Hanlon responded, I do not know anything and they never said anything to me about that at all. Agent A told Hanlon that the bottom line is they got people that saw you and they got your DNA. So that's not good, Gary. Hanlon's reaction was, so I'm fucked then. End quote. Yep, you're fucked, buddy. Yeah. And right there is his admission. Yep. Or the beginning of it. After that comment, like hungry sharks, the operative smelled blood in the water and led Gary Handlin into his confession. They said that they might be able to help get rid of evidence, but he had to come clean first. Handlin admitted having taken Monica Jack from the turnout, putting her into his camper, and driving up the mountain, where she was later found. From court documents, quote, Handlin said he had sex with the girl and then strangled her. He said he was positive he strangled her and that he then burned her clothing and threw her body behind a log. After that, he went back to the road behind Merritt somewhere and where he came out was Squamish, Pemberton, end quote. Operatives later traveled with Handlin to Merritt where he walked them through reenactments of what had happened with Monica Jack. He was unable to recall exact locations, taking them only to general spots. The same day he admitted to Monica Jack's murder, November 14, 2014, Hanlon also admitted to having killed Catherine Mary Herbert. According to court documents, Mr. Hanlon said he picked up Catherine Mary Herbert, quote, right by her home, not far from her home, end quote. He confirmed he had gone out with some chick that lived there. He was, quote, drinking, smoking pot, freaked out, and he killed her there at the dump site, end quote. He put her body in big blackberry bushes that were in the area and put a piece of plywood over her. When he was asked if there was anything else, Hanlon said no, but then he said he stabbed a guy years ago because the guy had stabbed him in the eye. Agent A expressed a lack of concern about that as the guy lived. The day after Gary Hanlon walked cops through what he recalled about Catherine Mary's murder more than 39 years ago, they went to the Matsqui Reserve. Again, Hanlon had trouble recalling details of locations. From court documents, quote, The location which Hanlon pointed out as a site where he left Ms. Herbert's remains was about 200 meters away from the site where her body was found by Mr. McKay and his cousin Mr. Jasper under a piece of plywood on November 24, 1975. The actual location of her remains was about 150 meters north of the location on the gravel road where the accused took the undercover officers west along the track leading to the cemetery area about 60 meters to the west of that track. In other words, the accused took officers west off the gravel road about 150 meters south of where the killer took Ms. Herbert to the west of the gravel road, end quote. 
Handlin said he'd found Catherine Mary's shoes in his car the next day and gotten rid of them, thus explaining their absence. Agent A brought up the possibility that Handlin's DNA might be used to tie him to other homicides, including the Herbert homicide and the homicide of Teresa Hildebrand. Handlin said the police had, quote, had my DNA for a long time, end quote. Agent A pointed out that since the police were just getting to this one, quote, it's not what they can prove today, it's what they might prove in a month or a year from now, end quote. He questioned whether, quote, they might do the same thing in relation to the Hildebrand and Herbert homicides. Hanlon responded, quote, who says they cannot plant DNA, end quote. He has not confessed to Teresa Hildebrand's murder, and her case remains open. Gary Taylor Hanlon was arrested and charged with the first-degree murders of Monica Jack and Catherine Mary Herbert. His tune quickly changed. Now Hanlon said he'd made up the confessions. He said he had not committed the murders. The woman he'd lived with in Ontario, he claimed, had helped him look up details about the two killings on the internet. He also claimed he'd watched David Ridgen's documentary Garden of Tears and had gathered details there as well. From CBC News, quote, On December 1st, RCMP announced Hanlon has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder and the deaths of the two girls. RCMP Superintendent Ward Limburner said, quote, the road to today's announcement has been long. He added, Police reviewed over 500 investigative tasks and then initiated another 241 tasks, including re-interviewing individuals and exploring new forensic analysis. End quote. Finding that Gary Handlin had been charged in her daughter's murder, Catherine Mary's mom Sherry spoke to the Vancouver Sun. Quote, she spoke through tears thanking police and everyone who helped keep her daughter's case active over the years. There is no such thing as a cold case to the families, Sherry said. These little girls, Monica and Catherine Mary, made a difference while they were here. She also thanked God for answering her prayers. I promised her at her graveside that I would never give up. I didn't. I thought I had failed her. I didn't. I thank God for that. Sherry said, her voice breaking. I thank God who loves us all, including Gary Taylor Handlin. End quote. Handlin went to trial in January of 2019. He was finally convicted for the murder of Monica Jack, for which he was tried first. The jury hadn't heard that he'd been charged with Catherine Mary Herbert's killing that occurred three years before Monica Jack's. They didn't need that evidence. From the Vancouver Sun, quote, The B.C. Supreme Court jury found Gary Taylor Handlin guilty of the May 1978 first-degree murder of Monica Jack, who disappeared while riding her bicycle near Merritt. The verdict came after two and one-half days of deliberations and a trial that began before a 14-member jury in October. Two of the jurors were dropped before the start of deliberations. End quote. Several members of Monica Jack's family, including her mother, were present for the killer's sentencing. Many of them wept during and after the proceedings, which included victim impact statements. Handlin was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. From the Vancouver Sun, quote, In imposing sentence on the accused, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen said the murder of the young girl was among the worst crimes and Handlin among the worst offenders. Quote, Your actions were certain to bring an innocent child terror and pain before her life was so savagely ended, said the judge. Cullen noted that Handlin, who has a prior record including several rapes, had demonstrated he was, quote, a sexual predator who preys on the weak and vulnerable. You ripped away the life of a young girl and deprived her of an opportunity to grow into adulthood and experience all that life has to offer, end quote. What? He's talking about one. What, what about Catherine Mary Herbert? Yeah. Or Teresa Hildebrand. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that. Okay. Because... It wasn't released until later why he was only tried for the one. Okay. This explains it. According to the Abbotsford News, in a February 14, 2019 article written by Vicki Hopes, reasons that Handlin had yet to be tried on Catherine Mary Herbert's murder had been held back from the public until after his trial for Monica Jack's slaying. Quote, a Mr. Big confession related to the 1975 murder of an Abbotsford girl was found inadmissible in court on the basis that the accused could have made up the story from media reports, two TV documentaries, and police investigating the case. 
B.C. Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen made the ruling last August in a voir dire during the trial of Gary Handlin, 71, who had been charged with the killing of Catherine Mary Herbert, 11, and the 1978 murder of Monica Jack, 12, of Merritt. But the ruling was not made public until this week, following the conclusion of Handlin's jury trial for the Jack murder. He was convicted and sentenced on January 27 to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. At the conclusion of the case, the Crown announced that it would not be proceeding with the Herbert case at that time, saying that key pieces of evidence had been found inadmissible. End quote. Catherine Mary's mom, Sherry, who'd been so active for so long to try to bring justice in her daughter's murder, was thankfully not around to see yet another disappointment. She died in 2016, two years after Handlin's arrest and before his trial. Gary Handlin has appealed his conviction in Monica Jack's slaying. His conviction was upheld in a decision just weeks ago by Honorable Madam Justice Bennett. Thanks, Judge Bennett. Teresa Hildebrandt's murder is still an open investigation. Uh. Many feel there might be another suspect responsible for her death. Really? Not everybody, obviously, believes that Gary Handlin was responsible for Teresa Hildebrandt's death. So That has to be disappointing for parents, but at the same time, I'm sure parents want to know who the real person was. How heartbreaking would it be to, to... After all those years. After all those years of hearing your daughter's name alongside these other two girls the whole time. Right, with this guy involved. With this guy involved, possibly. Right. And then all of a sudden, well... Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Your heart would sink. Uh, it, worse than sink, it's just like, now what do we do? Yeah. That's, now what do they do? That's sad. I feel, oh God. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 239. Delayed Justice Part 2, The Murder of Monica Jack. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okay, we have one voicemail this week. Uh, let's have a listen and see who said what. Who's it from, Mike? Who's it from? Um, my name is Ivy. Um, I am from the Huron region. I just listened to the Black Donnelly's episode. Um, I've known that case um, since I was in high school and studied it in my law class. I thought you guys covered it amazingly. I love the way that um, you made the family victims rather than um, horrible people. So thank you for that. I just wanted to say that I listen to you guys for eight hours a day every day while I'm at work. I'm currently calling you at 1.12 in the morning, right after my shift as I wait for my partner to get out of work. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say I love you guys so much. I think what you do is amazing. And I can't wait to hear more episodes and listen to you guys for eight hours a day. I hope you guys have an amazing day and go shit in your hat. <laughs> Well, I'm curious what she does. Ivy the Nighthawk from Huron region. Yes, exactly. She's a 911 operator, just listening between calls, maybe. Is that what you think it is? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> okay, Ivy. Yeah. Can you call back next week and tell us what you do? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm like fascinated now. I am really curious. And her, and, her, and her partner's working at night as well. At least they're on the same shift. I guess so. Right? Nighttime. We're making a lot of assumptions here, Matthew, because we don't have all the information. Her, I think her partner's name is... Um, Sam. No, it's Jackson. Jackson? Okay. Ivy and Jackson. Ivy and Jackson. And I think Jackson drives an ambulance. Okay. And Ivy does 911 calls. Okay. So, like, he goes out, runs people over... And, and then she gets the call from somebody who says, an ambulance just ran somebody over. And then he says, ooh, I'll be right there. Are you saying it's like a little scam I've going? I know. I think they're honest. Okay. I think some bad things happen. And, bad I, things and Ivy, happen. Ivy calls Jackson and says, got another one, unfortunately, for you, honey. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Ivy, we want to know what you and Jackson do for real living. I actually do. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows? 
Yeah. Well, we will find out when nope. she calls back. If she calls back. She will. Don't feel any pressure to do it. No. Feel the pressure. I want to know. <laughs> Matthew wants to know. I, like, honestly, my life will not be complete now until you call back. Oh, no. Yep. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right. Look at that. We have, oh dear. Oh no. What? We have a couple of uh, donut money donors this week. We didn't have any patrons, um, but that's okay. Squish, squish. <sighs> it's okay. What? A, what? Mike, Mike's still on a diet. <laughs> He doesn't need the food. It's a forced diet. <laughs> anyway, um, first up, we have, I don't know how to pronounce this last name, but I'm going to go for it. Okay. Danielle Choliwa. Okay. And she didn't say anything and doesn't, I don't know where she's from. So, Danielle, where is she from, Matthew? Budapest. Budapest. I do like the Budapest. Yes. Have you been? You have been. Many times. Many times. What is your favorite thing about Budapest? The Gellard Baths. What is that? Oh, is that a, like a male bath house? No, it's just like a bathhouse. And, oh. And you like, but not like one of, not like a gay one. Okay. You, just you, you a get, bath you, you get like hosed down and massaged and, and whacked with these birch bark things. It sounds like a gay bar. And, um, <laughs> and it's beautiful. And the parliament is, I think, one of the most beautiful parliaments oh, in the world. Cool. On the on the river in Hungary. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think that Danielle does there in Budapest, Hungary? She hits people with the birch sticks <laughs> at, the, at the bath. Yep. Oh, I don't need to be hit with a birch stick. Yeah. I do enough beating myself. No, it's some up, sort. I'm not sure if it's birch. I can't remember. It's like a switch kind of thing. But it no, it, it has leaves and stuff on it. And it's oh, like, that probably feels it's nice. It's good for your blood flow. Yeah, and it smells really nice. nice. Yeah. Cool. Uh, next, we have, I know where she's from. How do you Outside know? of Bridgewater, Nova uh, Scotia, Rebecca you? Cowperthwaite. Hello, Rebecca Cowperthwaite. She's my sister's friend. Okay. She takes care of my sister's dog, Dexter. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so she's like uh, Rachel, who's just gotten over uh, COVID. She's Rachel's good friend, Rebecca. And I met Rebecca. Does at, Rachel call her Bex Bex? I don't know. Okay. I don't know if she calls her that. But I met Rebecca at, and her husband at Christmas time, and they brought us treats and all that kind of stuff. Is this the one that lives in the lower part of your, where your sister lives in lower the upper La part? Lower La <laughs> yeah, upper La Haven, lower La Yeah, so essentially she Is she in upper or lower La Haven? I can't remember. Okay. I can't remember. I don't remember, you know... Which shoe goes on which foot. So okay, I have trouble with that. <laughs> I, I actually do. But uh, but yeah, so thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Much Bex, Bex. Appreciated. She sent us some donut money via Interact, which you can nice. also do. So yeah, just there's, send it. There's to many ways to give Mike some money. <laughs> Start using them. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Hopefully, uh, people in the United States will start hearing some ads, and that will offset our our Patreon losses. But, Bing bong. But you know, people are struggling right now, and and we understand that if you struggle, that means we struggle too. <laughs> anyway, that's that. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. 
that is it for this week's show. So until next time, have yourself a happy Thanksgiving and don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Because bad apples are spoil the whole bunch. Man, they're not good for pie. Although you're having pumpkin pie now. Or probably apple pie you too. You could have an apple fall. pie. Yeah. Anyway, bye. <laughs>